Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 159, From Arras to Tours. And indeed, to another weekly word from Kevin, author of the History of English podcast. Last week we heard about the diplomatic disaster at Arras, the withdrawal of the Burgundian alliance and the death of Bedford. Today, we're going to take things from 1435 all the way through to the Treaty of Tours in 1444 and see how a new political structure began to emerge and how the character of the new king began to emerge as well. Our stage is set, ladies and gentlemen, for some new players to tread the boards. But before any of that, the English had to fight for their lives. As soon as the news at Arras became known, the French were on the offensive from northern France. The death of Bedford had not only deprived England of a leader at least approaching the stature of Henry V, it also pulled away the keystone of the English defences in Normandy. What Bedford had done had been to gather around him a group of leaders who owed him personal allegiance, and through them he controlled the network of captains who held land and fortresses throughout English-held France. With his death, suddenly this chain of command was completely dislocated. Now, if these captains had owed allegiance to an office holder, well, that would have been fine. But their allegiance had often been personal to Bedford. The French swept down the coast, capturing Dieppe and a series of coastal fortresses, all the way down to and including Harfleur. Rouen, the capital of Normandy, was threatened with attack. In Paris, the English watched as fortress after fortress around the city fell and its position became more and more vulnerable. In Calais, the English took the news of Burgundian defection badly. 
very badly. In fact, so badly that the English in the town were given free rein to plunder the Burgundian merchants. Philip the Good was livid, and as a result, not only did he become an ally of the French king, he now became the enemy of the English. He declared war. He gathered an army. He started reducing nearby castles as a prelude to an attack on Calais. Bayek, none of this looked good. Back in England, Beaufort arrived home to an understandably cool reception. Arras was a major political defeat for him. So it should have been the perfect opportunity for Gloucester to assert himself and gain recognition and position of leadership he'd always wanted. And meanwhile, there was Bedford's job as Lieutenant of France, open and up for grabs. For this role, there were three lords of royal blood available in addition to Gloucester. There was Richard of York, fabulously wealthy successor of the executed Richard of Cambridge. Secondly, there was the Duke of Huntingdon. And thirdly, there was John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. Unfortunately, Somerset had been rather exposed by Joan of Arc as something of a muppet and was in prison in France. So, from these options, Gloucester's candidate was... Um, Gloucester. So it's complicated. On the face of it, Gloucester was the out-and-out winner of this little struggle. After all, he was appointed as the head of a planned army of 7,000 men to go to France. In addition to this, it was Richard of York who got the nod as Lieutenant Governor, rather than Beaufort's nephew Somerset. So game, set and match to his nibs, Gloucester. Well, actually, not really. The trouble was that Beaufort could be discredited as much as you like, but he had shed loads of cash. And to defend France, the English needed shed loads of cash. Until the English developed a bottomless pit of money, or pigs developed wings, Beaufort's money would bring him influence. And Beaufort's schemes were all bent towards his nephews, John and Edmund Beaufort. If anything could demonstrate the triumph of family loyalties over national interests, Beaufort's support for his spectacularly useless nephews is it. The other problem was, hated or loathe it, folks really didn't just trust Gloucester. There was something deeply unreliable about him. The nobility were, by and large, not keen on populism, and Gloucester had the smell of a rabble-rouser about him. So the council and parliament hedged their bets, because really the only answer was that they needed the king to balance and control the needs and jealousies of all those ambitious nobles. That was, after all, partly why the job existed at all. So even though he was only 14 years old, Henry began to attend council sessions from October 1435. We'll talk about this a bit more in a few minutes. So anyway, for the moment Gloucester did seem to be riding high, but it was a temporary position he was not to get a lot of time to enjoy. That brings us back to Richard of York, the new lieutenant of France to replace Bedford. As you'll no doubt remember, Richard was the son of Richard of Cambridge, mentioned this last week, executed as a traitor by Henry V. Last time we saw Richard was not Detroit in 68, it was being handed over to Richard Neville, Earl of Westmoreland as a ward, and marrying Cecily Neville. Then in 1425, York had acquired the Mortimer estates as well, and now in 1436 he had complete control of all his estates. Richard of York had given his wealth and his bloodline could well have been seen as a threat to Henry VI's regime. But it's clear that he wasn't, or not at this time at least. He'd been part of Henry's household from a young age, including travelling to France to see the coronation. In 1433, he'd been admitted to the Order of the Garter. 
and rather than a rival, York was seen as the perfect candidate for the role of Lieutenant Governor of France. The Commission talked about the need for a Prince of the Royal Blood, and of course, Royal Blood coursed in York's veins. Both his parents, Cambridge and Anne Mortimer, were descended from Edward III. His descent in the female line was from Edward III's son, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, and some might say that was therefore the greater claim than the Lancastrian king, since the Lancastrian claim came from John of Gaunt, who was a younger son of Edward III than was Lionel. But at this time, no one was worried about that. Everyone was waiting for Henry VI to take control of the reins, and it was the male line that counted. It has to be said that York's expedition seemed to take forever to set off. But when it did, it was immediately successful. Although a lot of the military credit should go to our robber baron, Talbot, taking a rest from robbing innocent passers-by in Hereford. Talbot seemed to combine viciousness with military panache, and maybe that's just the way it goes. Nonetheless, under York, Rouen was saved, and much of northern Normandy reclaimed, and certainly French advance halted. There are a couple of straws in the wind here to bear in mind for the future. York was clearly a cautious young man. He didn't set off until he was absolutely sure everything was ready, and you could point out that this meant that the chance to hold on to Paris was lost. And it doesn't seem to be him that does the military stuff. York's talents seem to lie in the diplomatic direction, and he delegated a lot of the military stuff to others. Beaufort, meanwhile, had used his vast reserves of cash to get some recognition for his family anyway, kitting out an expedition of about 2,000 men under Edmund Beaufort, same guy who'd shied away from marrying Catherine of Valois to relieve Calais. Beaufort was in this expedition satisfyingly successful, capturing key strong points in the besiegers' positions, and eventually Burgundy had no choice but to withdraw from the walls of Calais. So when Gloucester arrived, there was really nothing for him to do, so he went on a good old traditional honest-to-goodness burn-and-pillage into Flanders, and Duke Philip avoided battle like a gooden. The Chevorsay achieved nothing of any military value, but when he got home, of course, Gloucester used his literary contacts to find him a writer who wrote some fancy piece about what a great campaign it had been and how Gloucester was every bit as cool as his brother. All that sort of thing. It's typical Gloucester. Whatever you do, big it up, until it can be bigged no further. It's interesting, you know. If you cast your minds back to King John and the last time we managed to lose Normandy, it was lightning quick. As I remember, good King Richard died in 1199 and by 1204, Normandy was no longer part of the Angevin Empire. Well, it's tougher for the French this time around. There's a great deal of gritting of teeth and earnest effort to go before the denouement. Which is interesting because, quite frankly, being in Normandy, men and Anjou from 1435 onwards began to be increasingly less fun. The Norman estates had to continually fork out taxation to maintain their own defence, although they were now clearly incapable of shouldering the whole burden and are therefore consistently subsidised by the English. As time went by, the English became more and more to feel like an army of occupation. As they waged a defensive war, the French constantly held the military initiative. Talbot's military career gives a flavour. There is no doubt that Talbot had military talent in spades. Over the next seven years, his story is one of brilliant surprise attacks, lightning raids, stout defence of castles and the recapturing of French fortresses, such as a surprise attack on Gisors. But nonetheless, 
Over the years, to 1444 and the Truce of Tours, the French were slowly, nibble by nibble, gaining ground. The town of Dieppe was never recaptured, and therefore the French held a salient south of the River Somme. The critical castle of Moore on the Seine was captured. We've heard this town many times, standing as it does in the French Vexin, controlling the approach to Paris, or indeed to Rouen, depending on your direction of travel. And meanwhile, the Norman people were becoming actively hostile. War had ravaged a lot of their livelihood, and brigandage increased massively. The woods and wastelands were no-go areas. Violence strangled trade. There were numerous local riots and uprisings that had to be squished. It was difficult to be militarily aggressive when you were constantly trying to keep things under control everywhere else. So what we have is a kind of dull grinding war of attrition, which was wearing both parties down. French couldn't get in, the English couldn't get out. After 18 months, York was replaced by the hoary veteran Warwick, who complained that he was way too old for this kind of thing, and then proved his point by dying in 1439, to be replaced by York again for a second stint. York's second period of command in France was much like the first, in the sense that he saw his role as diplomatic and administrative, and the actual fighting he left to Talbot. Back at home, Gloucester's point was that the strategy was all wrong. Why are we all sitting around like a bunch of namby-pamby girls' blouses while the French dictate strategy? If my brother Henry was around, we'd be taking the battle to the French, not waiting for them to stick it to us. They don't like it up em, you know. And you have to feel he has a point but by 1440 Gloucester, and indeed his arch-rival Beaufort, were becoming increasingly irrelevant politically. So, let us gather our mental wings, gentle listeners, and leap from the fields of France, swoop over the Channel back to good old Blighty, and see how things are shaping up there. Over these years, that is from 1435, the character and influence of the new king was beginning to be felt. The only solution to the council's unattractive choice between the discredited Beaufort and the unpalatable and unreliable Gloucester had been to activate the king, as it were, despite his tender years of 14. The way it operated was that the council, worried by early signs of incompetence or at least the king's youth and inexperience, retained control of policy. But the king's will was recognised and the young king took into his hands the control of his household and, crucially, his powers of patronage that could not be separated from the exercise of his will. Seriously, look, it's not good. I mean, I guess it could have been worse. It might have transpired that Henry had something of a passion for impaling people on spikes or something like that, although maybe in a medieval king that would actually have been better, because what was emerging from the chrysalis was a very pious young man, which was fine, but also a very weak-willed and mild young man. Henry had no desire to learn how to stick a knife under an opponent's helmet and cut their windpipe. He had no desire to learn military strategy and how to claim the throne of France. Insofar as Henry had a discernible policy and strategy, he wanted to contemplate the Lord. He loved fine clothes and things, actually, but when he wore his crown and trappings, he also wore a hair shirt. He wanted to get involved in creating beautiful buildings. He wanted to spread learning. He hated the nasty divisions in Christendom, one of which it appeared that his country was responsible for. And he would much rather be appeasing and getting on with his cousin, Charles VII, so they could live in peace, harmony and happiness. 
There's an expression, is there not, that as you sit down at a poker table and look around you, you look for the loser. The rabbit, the turkey, the pigeon, whatever title you use. And if you can't see them, well then it's you. Well, as Charles sat down at the diplomatic table, he knew darned well who the rabbit was, and he was to thoroughly enjoy ruthlessly exploiting the weakness he saw in front of him. Charles hasn't really come across as having any great talent or character in his years of adversity, but actually, in his new position, he at least showed a grasp of strategy and showed a streak of toughness, which is much easier, of course, from a position of strength. The other obvious feature of Henry was that he wanted to make people happy. And he wanted to make people happy so they wouldn't constantly ask him to make all those horrible decisions and he could get away from the troubles and strife of the world. Henry was constantly running away from horrid decisions from his responsibility for those decisions. He would love and cherish anyone who helped him do that. He'd also find it pretty difficult to say no to anyone. Henry was surrounded by his household, populated by the scions of all manner of noble family, from knight to magnate. And in the years ahead, he freely showed his generosity or his complete inability to say no, depending on whether you take the half-empty or half-full approach. Now, as it happens, Henry was sitting pretty. He didn't have any children, of course, and that meant all the lands that traditionally the monarchy gave out to its younger members were in the royal hands, so like Wales, for example. Plus, as Duke of Lancaster, he was in the same situation. So, the Palatinate of Chester, the lands of Lancaster, all these lands were still directly in his hands. And that's in addition to all the normal wardships and escheats, and so on and so forth. So Henry started spraying all this patronage around him like confetti. The hallowed halls of Westminster Palace were filled with entitled young popinjays hanging around outside the royal privy, hoping to get a manor or two as a reward for handing the young king the royal loo roll. The council knew exactly what was going on. In council meetings or consultations, Henry was limp, to the point of being vacant. He would be absent and distracted in conversation. He'd say yes to the last person who spoke to him. That was for the moment just about OK, because the council was keeping those big decisions in their own hands. But for patronage, they watched open-mouthed, horrified and helpless, as the young king blew his inheritance and reduced his crown to penury. Historian Dan Jones quotes a note that was written by one of the council meetings that says, Remember to speak unto the king to be aware how that he granteth pardons, or else how he doeth them to be amended, for he doeth to himself therein great disavail. There was some positive in all of this, although given that the pot of patronage was finite, the advantage was limited time-wise. It did, in the short term, help keep the peace. Henry said yes to everyone not just to one faction. So while there was honey in the hive, the bees were happy. It also meant, though, that the culture of political life changed. Under Henry V and the minority, the culture was essentially one of war, the struggle for supremacy in France, the culture of the camp. As Henry VI's influence grew stronger, his hatred of war, his desire for the fabric of Christendom to be repaired, his wanton distribution of patronage, that made the culture become a court culture and a culture of peace. Henry wasn't interested in hearing about Talbot's latest campaign. He wanted to create a new school outside Slough and a new college. The level of patronage drew the mobility into Westminster and into court, 
and Westminster became the centre of gravity in a way that it hadn't been for many years. Since Henry was so eager to please, the people around him, the people of his household, were the first to profit from his generosity and the biggest winners. Which brings me, as night follows day, back to William de la Poole, Duke of Suffolk. You've heard a bit about Suffolk already. Commander at Orléans, captured by the French at Yargour. Suffolk managed to pay off his enormous ransom and get back to England in 1430. He set about repairing his fortunes with impressive speed. His first big coup was his marriage to Alice Chaucer. Alice was the granddaughter of Geoffrey Chaucer, the poet and torturer of English schoolchildren, and she's an interesting case in herself. She and the Chaucer family are a good example of the sort of social mobility that was possible, if hard and slow, through court patronage and the right family connections. Geoffrey's father, John Chaucer, had been a successful merchant who had won a position for his son through his connections with the royal court to whom he sold his wines. He'd managed to get his son into public office, but the marriage of his maternal aunt, Catherine Swinford, to John of Gaunt was every bit as important to the family's rise. Geoffrey's son, Thomas Chaucer, had a successful career as Speaker of the House of Commons and again married well and maintained his connections with the powerful Beaufort family. And thence to Thomas's only daughter, Alice. At the age of 27, Alice had already been married twice. Her first husband died when she was but 11. Her second was the Salisbury who died at Orléans. The point of all of this is twofold. The first is that when Alice died, her very grand tomb bore the inscription Pray for the most serene princess, Alice, Duchess of Suffolk. Which is quite a claim for the descendant of a merchant's family. The Chaucers had come far. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The second is that for Suffolk, this was a good match. He gained not just access to Alice's wealth and property, but also her Beaufort connections. Theirs appears to have been a close relationship as much as we can tell at this distance. Together they built almshouses and extended their manor at Uelm and built a grammar school there. And they also shared the same interest in life. Both were to gain a reputation for ruthless and aggressive acquisitiveness. Because Suffolk was an ambitious man. By 1431... He'd used his connections to gain admission to the King's Council, and he was a constant and active member of that council, using his influence to become the steward of the royal household. Now this was a peach of a position for an ambitious man. The steward was constantly in the King's presence, with unfettered and private access to the King that was needed to sort out his various household businesses. Masses of priceless opportunities to get his views and his requests over to the King. And rewards duly followed. His brief tour of duty in France with York was followed by generous payments and compensations. Suffolk was meanwhile proving himself to be his own man politically. 
The Beaufort connections meant he was part of Cardinal Beaufort's entourage at Arras, but when it came to the competition between Beaufort's nephew or Gloucester's nominee York to become Lieutenant Governor of France, Suffolk's influence came down on the Gloucester side rather than the Beaufort side. Suffolk was building connections across the political divisions of the day. All of this became increasingly important as the power of the Royal Council declined after Henry became more involved in the direct running of the affairs of the kingdom after 1436 and after the diplomatic disaster at Arras. Suffolk was a clever and subtle politician. There was a pattern in the following years up to the 1440s of Suffolk building alliances and support for his leadership. A good example in the late 1430s is in a competitor for political power, the Chamberlain, William Felp. At some point, the two stopped fighting each other, and it appears that Suffolk basically offered the lad an accommodation. Suffolk would get valuable patronages for Felp in the Duchy of Lancaster, and in return, Felp would give Suffolk his support. In the hothouse atmosphere of the royal court, Suffolk used this formula time and time again. And as his power became stronger and stronger, the old axis of Gloucester and Beaufort began to look increasingly irrelevant. Suffolk's importance and influence was accentuated by the character of the king, because Henry was simply refusing to properly take the levers of power into his hands, and into this vacuum stepped Suffolk. It's easy to see Suffolk as a slippery and calculating villain. But the truth was that there was a vacuum at the heart of government and hated or loathe it, it was a space that had to be filled by somebody or something. Suffolk didn't visibly act to take his rivals down when Beaufort came back in 1439 to Parliament with an offer of a truce from France on frankly laughable terms that nobody was going to say yes to. He lost much influence and credibility. But Suffolk didn't use the opportunity to remove him. And Suffolk made the point constantly through his career of gaining agreement from both king and council for all his actions and policies. The failure that eventually came his way was a failure for the whole English body politic, not just Suffolk. Though, to be honest, it was Suffolk who would get it in the neck, as it were. Actually, Suffolk didn't always need to act publicly against his rivals for power. They had the unfortunate habit of blowing themselves up. Gloucester partly had his wife to thank for his fall from grace through a quite remarkable business. To explain... So, both Gloucester and his wife, Eleanor of Cobham, were not alone in having an interest in astrology, but the direction that Eleanor took her interest was a little bit foolish, and the price she was to pay heavy indeed. With Bedford's death and the king, of course, still childless, Gloucester was heir to the throne. Um, thought Eleanor. Um, that's interesting. I wonder how healthy Henry is. Purely in the interests of scientific inquiry, you understand. So she took her question to some well-known and perfectly reasonable astrologist, all done perfectly openly, you understand. And they duly predicted that Henry was going to have a serious illness that would threaten his life. And word got out. Who knows how? And suddenly everyone was in a panic. Pandemonium broke out. The council commissioned alternative horoscopes, which said, Nah, Henry will be fine. And Eleanor's activities viewed in an unfavourable light, began to look distinctly dodgy. And then suddenly, in 1441, hey presto, she was arrested. She was then examined by an ecclesiastical court in 1441, in July, and a load of other stuff came out. Specifically, that she'd got some potions from Marjorie Jordamain, the Witch of Eye, to help her bear Gloucester a son. 
they threw the book at her. Eleanor was forced to abjure her errors and walk barefoot to three London churches in chilly November. She was forcibly divorced from Gloucester and condemned to perpetual imprisonment, and she died at Beaumaris in 1452. But not a patch on what happened to the others, however. The astrologer was hanged, drawn and quartered. Marjorie the witch burned. Suffolk didn't cause this, but it would be naive to think that he didn't exploit it. I have serious doubts that he would be found on his knees in front of the king pleading for Gloucester's innocence. But for the moment at least, Gloucester's political clout was over. This was not the only reason for Gloucester's fall from grace. The problem for Gloucester was that the whole of English policy was going in a completely different direction. Gloucester was the hawk, the aggressor. As far as he was concerned, naked steel was the only language the Frenchies understood. They didn't like it up them, and that's where we should be putting it. The king thought differently. War was an abomination, the rift in Christendom equally horrendous, and his fervent desire to heal the division with his brother Charles, King of France. There were still voices for war, but the direction was towards peace. Suffolk saw it as his job to deliver the king's wishes. And he knew which side his bread was buttered. And it was the king's side. It was the side that didn't hit the floor when you dropped the bread that get all those nasty hairs and stuff stuck to it. As matters in Normandy slid towards increasing violence and discord and the war spread to Gascony, Suffolk supported his king's interest in peace, including, incidentally, the foundation in 1442 of a college near the Paradise of Slough in a little place called Eton and King's College, Cambridge. And given that those are still with us, and English possessions in France a dim, distant and rather violent memory, who again is not to say that Henry's was the greater wisdom? But one has to suspect that Suffolk was more interested in bread-buttering than in slough. And yet, and yet, there were still voices for war. And one of those voices was now the other political dinosaur, Cardinal Beaufort. As we've said, in 1439 Beaufort's credibility had taken a further hit with the feeble truce proposals he'd brought back from France. Then, in 1440, the Cardinal had been bested when Richard of York had been appointed Lieutenant Governor of France, rather than John Beaufort, the Cardinal's nephew and candidate. But in 1443, with the war looking bad in both Normandy and Gascony, the good Cardinal tried one more roll of the dice. He used all his remaining influence, and most importantly his wealth, to persuade the council to send John Beaufort to war with an army of 4,000 men, entirely funded by the Cardinal. An army designed to bring Charles to battle and settle this thing once and for all. York was furious. John Beaufort was given a dukedom, equivalent rank, and an army entirely separate from his official military command. It spoke of a lack of trust and confidence in York. John Beaufort's expedition was a fissurable malia. It wandered down the western edge of Normandy, blundered its way to Gascony. Charles sat back, sucked on some bonbons, refused to fight, and watched it disintegrate. By the following year, 1444, John Beaufort was back in England, and he died the same year, and in fact it's highly likely he committed suicide. As a side note, for later, John Beaufort had only one surviving legitimate child, a little girl called Margaret Beaufort, born in 1443. Margaret was entrusted to her mother, but the wardship of her lands while she was a minor and the right to arrange her marriage were awarded, surprise, surprise, to the Duke of Suffolk. 
and by 1450, Suffolk had married her to his own son John, in yet another opportunity to use his power for the greater glory of the Poole family. In the fullness of time, Margaret was to prove herself nobody's pawn. It also means we say goodbye to Henry Beaufort, Cardinal and Bishop of Winchester. He retired from court and died in 1447, a man of enormous erudition, subtlety, ambition. It's difficult to know exactly how to judge him, but as Enoch Powell famously said, all political careers end in failure, and sadly that appears to be true of the Cardinal's career. And the last of Suffolk's biggest rivals had been removed. Now, someone once told me that if you're looking to buy a house, the critical thing you must on no account do is fall in love with any of the houses you're looking at. Because if the owner finds out, they'll skin you, good and proper. But sadly for Suffolk and the English, this was not the position they found themselves in. They wanted, they needed peace so badly. They'd do pretty much anything to get it. For Henry, it was philosophical. For Suffolk, it was practical. England couldn't afford a war, Normandy was a mess, and political, i.e. the boss wanted it. For England's nobility, while they refused to spend any more money on the war in France and saw nothing in the war for themselves any more anyway. So this meant that Suffolk was playing a difficult hand in negotiations. It would require a man of exceptional diplomatic skill to gain an effective peace. In Charles, in this instance, he faced a ruthless and skilful opponent. Where Henry made Suffolk give, Charles held back. Having said that, it wasn't a completely one-sided duel. Charles also had some pressures. His nobility were once again divided. He wanted to take the war again to Burgundy. The war in Normandy appeared to be a complete impasse. So even while John Beaufort's miserable expedition wandered through France, Charles indicated that maybe a deal was possible, on the basis of a royal marriage. And so in March 1444, Suffolk and his entourage landed in France and proceeded to Tours to meet with the French. With him went much hope, but also much suspicion. Suffolk, said many magnates, was not the right man for this. He had extensive contacts with the French nobility, slightly dodgy connections, such as the Duke of Orléans, for example. Was he really to be trusted? Was he really on the right side? Actually, even Suffolk begged not to be made to go for the same reason, but Henry insisted. For Henry now relied entirely on Suffolk. And indeed, a deal did emerge from Tours. It turned out the royal family did not really mean heir to the throne. There was no way that Charles was going to bolster the claims of the King of England to the Crown of France by offering one of his daughters. But the lady in question was his niece, the 15-year-old Margaret of Anjou, daughter of the rather impoverished René of Anjou, hence a remarkably feeble dowry and no land or anything like that. But the deal was signed, a marriage and a two-year truce at the Treaty of Tours. The betrothal took place in May, with Suffolk standing in for the king. Back in England, everyone was delighted. Henry was delighted that there would be peace, even if only a truce. Suffolk was delighted. As far as he understood it, this was just the precursor to proper full peace negotiations. As it happens, he and his king... Now, as it happens, he and his king had done a secret deal with the French. They'd ceded, conquered Maine, back to the French. And indeed, Henry was to write to Charles in his own hand to confirm that promise. Suffolk, though he might have felt uneasy, a full peace wasn't actually stated in the Treaty of Tours, 
was fully confident that in return for Maine they'd get a full peace and English sovereignty for Normandy. Unfortunately, as we'll find out next time, that was not Charles's intention. That was not his intention at all. And now, it's time for the Weekly Word, supplied this week again by Kevin, author of the History of English podcast. Thanks, David. This episode's word is the word spell. We usually use the word to describe the process of constructing a word, letter by letter. In school, you might have to take a spelling test. You might even participate in a spelling bee. Whether you're a good speller or a bad speller, this sense of the word spell has been around for about six centuries. In fact, it entered English in the early 1400s. But of course, that's only one sense of the word spell. You might also cast a spell or become spellbound. And that's actually an older use of the word spell, a use which goes back to the old English language of the Anglo-Saxons. So what's the connection between those two words? And why did we acquire this later sense of spelling words in the 1400s? Well, of course, the answer lies in the history of the word. The story of spell begins with an Indo-European root word, which meant to recite or tell or speak. That word has been reconstructed as spell, very similar to our modern word spell. As the original Indo-European language spread throughout Europe, the word spell passed to the early Germanic tribes in northern Europe. From the original sense of speaking or reciting a story, the Germanic version of the word came to mean a story or tale or fable. Among those Germanic-speaking tribes were the people who became known as the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons migrated to Britain and brought the word spell with them. In their Old English language, the word spell retained that Germanic sense of a story or saying or fable. It could also mean a report about certain events. So it was basically the news. If someone spoke of the good news in the world, they were delivering the good spell, the good spell. And that word was later shortened to gospel. By the 1200s, the word spell was being used in a more limited sense, literally more limited. Rather than referring to the news or a long story, it was increasingly used to refer to a short utterance or saying. And a couple of centuries later, it was being used to refer to a short saying which possessed magical powers. So it had come to mean a charm or an incantation. And that's where we got the sense of the word spell as in a witch's spell. And if someone cast a spell upon you, you might be enchanted or spellbound. But what does all of that have to do with spelling words? Do you have to be under a spell to be a good speller? Well, no. To find the connection, we have to go back to those Germanic tribes in northern Europe. I noted that the Anglo-Saxons migrated to Britain and brought the word spell with them. But before they left the continent, their neighbors in northwestern Europe were the Franks. The Franks spoke a similar Germanic dialect, and they also had the word spell, and they carried that word spell with them across the Rhine into what became France. Even though French is a Romance language derived from Latin, it actually picked up a lot of words from the Germanic language of the Franks who actually founded the French state. And one of those words was the word spell, or espelet in early French. Within French, the word still had a sense of something spoken or recited. 
but the sense changed slightly to mean something explained or interpreted. So it was what you did when you broke something down and explained it step by step, sort of like an instruction manual. After the Norman conquest of England, this French version of the word entered English, and we still have some of that original sense of the French version when I'm trying to explain something to you, and I say that I'm going to spell it out for you. What I'm really saying is that I'm going to break it down piece by piece. As that French version of spell entered English, it came to be used in a very specific context. It was used to refer to the process of trying to read a difficult passage in a book or a manuscript. You had to break it down word by word to make sense out of it. And for a lot of those English speakers who were trying to read all of those new texts written in French, you can imagine how this was a common frustration. So if you spelled something, you were reading a passage very slowly, word by word. But over time, by logical extension, the word "spell" came to refer to the process of breaking down individual words letter by letter. To make sense of a word, you had to spell it. In other words, you had to break it down. You had to identify each individual letter and then put them all together in the right order. And thus, the modern English word "spell." So there you go. The history of the word "spell," a good old Germanic word which came to us thanks to both the Anglo-Saxons and the Franks. Hope you were spellbound by this story, and not bored to tears as I spelled it out for you. Back to you, David. Thanks, Kevin. Which brings us to the end of this week's episode. I think I'm right in saying that next week I would normally have a week off, but this time I'm not going to do that. You might think this is a good thing. And you would be wrong to say think, because it is simply a sop, a sop, because I am then going to take a frankly outrageous further three weeks off since we've hit holiday time. Yay! So we'll have one next week, and then the next one will not be the twenty-second, nor will it be the twenty-ninth. Not even will it be the sixth of September. It will be thirteenth of September. What can I say? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. In the meantime, could I make a plea? It seems so long, so long since I've had a new review on iTunes, particularly the UK version, that I fear no one's out there anymore. So, if you feel moved by this bit of neediness, hop along and post one, would you? Thankfully, I have some donators to thank: Laura and apologies for missing you, David and Tudor Queen on Flatter as always, Aditi with both Feck and Ruth, Platt, Oak, Mary, James, Russell. Thanks so much, and finally, thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck, and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.